Uh, it is certainly wonderful and good to be back home to be with each of you as well. Very uh, interesting, challenging week as it always is in preparing, whether it's Sunday school or a sermon, but probably even more so when you're going to be talking about worship of God, especially as, as the church. So today, Lord willing, we're going to go to Zion and learn more fundamentals of worship. So today, a little sidebar, but still fully under the realm of ecclesiology, is, is biblical theology of corporate worship. So I do, as I failed to mention, I do appreciate everyone's prayers this week. They were greatly heard and welcomed and effective. But before we, we dive into this, and truly this is going to be a sprint, um, as comprehensive as corporate worship is, and to dive into the biblical theology, all the aspects or ramifications, the foundations of it, we could easily be here for another four or five weeks. But so get out your pen and paper. If you want a copy of the notes or the slides, I'd be glad to pass them on to you. But here we go. So before we look into what this means, what we are doing, what we are to do as a church, how we know what we should be doing each week when we gather together, what is truly pleasing to God, what is not pleasing to God as members of the body of Christ, first and foremost, as members of one another, and to consider that we are now his bride, what others have referred to as being the queen of, of Christ. I want to look, just look at some questions, some considerations for us to get our mind and gear and engaged today. What, what do you think of, what do we think of when we say corporate worship or biblical worship for or in the church? And, and just considering this subject, the study of worship in the church, as I said, it's, it's truly a great means of grace that God has given us, but it's extensive, it is comprehensive. And it's a subject that I know many of you are aware of. It's, it's been one that continues to divide in some denominations, even in some churches, about a particular building style, what kind of music, what is the true, what is the best liturgical order, etc., etc., etc. But worship in God's church in Christ's church and all that it entails, and I'm going to go into this in detail later, but if it is not warranted by the word of God, it can easily become defined by preferences, by outside influences, by customs of the culture. So it's something that as an elder, as a pastor, as a guardian of the flock, we need to be, I need to be, Pastor Amelia and I need to be, as well as each and every one of us, on the alert, watchful on those things, that we don't get sidelined, sidetracked, and, and start introducing some things too extremely liberal. But uh, some folks understand corporate worship as just going to church, as just mere religious activities, or it's just the type of songs we sing or the type of instruments we use. Some think, of, uh, or, or link it, you know, just as a very simplistic but true way, like 1 Corinthians 10.31, that everything we do, 
whether we eat or drink, all that we should do to be to the glory of God. That's very true. That should be kind of a mantra, a, a, a purpose in our lives. But that, again, is so comprehensive. Or Romans 12, 1, Paul says to urge, you know, he urges us, brethren, to present our bodies as a living and holy sacrifice, which is our spiritual service of worship unto him. Some would even identify worship of God as just our private devotions, what we do each morning, what we share intimately with the Lord. But when we look at Scripture, that really excludes the body aspect of being fitted together, as Paul says, being built as living stones, as Peter says, into a spiritual house. And that truly limits the, the community purposes God intends for his church, what is just demonstrated to be a vital reality in corporate worship. So what we're going to hit today first is a couple scriptures that kind of summarize and encapsulate both from the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, and the New Testament, two scriptures that, that really looked at. We're not going to go into these, exposit these in details, but Psalm 37, 3 to 5. Trust in the Lord. It begins with God always. And do good. Dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord, which is the essence of, of true worship. And he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him and he will do it. In John 4, a very wonderful passage where Jesus has the encounter with the woman at the well when he says, but an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father both in spirit and in truth. And we're going to look at this in particular today. It is for such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. For God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. So today we're going to first start out is some simple definitions, proposed definitions of what, what corporate worship is, a biblical theology of corporate worship. First off, we, we need to understand that a proper theology of worship, we've got to consider key themes such as the revelation of God in Scripture, the redemptive plan and fulfillment of God through Christ, God's covenant with Israel, because from Israel, from the old covenant, we see aspects of what has been fulfilled for us and enables us to worship God. What we see in his church and the call for his people to live in a, in a distinct, as a, as a separate nation and as a separate people unto the Lord in the world. So in a, in a mindset of, of considering a corporate, a body of Christ, a local body, a local gathering of believers can be in one way defined as those united in purpose in the pursuit and worship of God by the Spirit's work under the headship and righteousness of Christ alone and according to his word to glorify him, to receive from him, to grow in an ever-increasing delight and joy in his glory because of who he is and all that he has done for us. And it includes all of the basic elements of the Christian life. It describes our total existence. It's not just confined to two, three, four, five hours here on Sunday, as you know. One author proposes this definition. Actually, it comes from a book I'll recommend later. 
It's called Engaging with God, a Biblical Theology of Worship by David G. Peterson. Note the G, because David J. Peterson wrote a bunch of goofy stuff for Hollywood. David G. Peterson. He says, worship, corporate worship, is the supreme and only indispensable activity of the Christian church. It alone will endure like the love of God for, for God, which it expresses into heaven when all other activities of the church have passed away. It must, therefore, even more strictly than any of the less essential doings of the church come under criticism and control of the revelation on which the church is founded. So I can send that to you if you want to get that definition later. I thought that was excellent. But in all of this, and and beginning to understand corporate worship of, of God by the church, we, we not only need to see, but to believe and fully engage in this profound and most holy and significant privilege we now have to worship God as his people. And, and as he has set it forth for us in his word, but also to know and be fully engaged in each aspect of corporate worship as we understand and grow in it. It's not an immediate thing that we fully comprehend this. We're fully engaged to the hill, to the fullness. It's a growth, just like our sanctification. So we also must look closely and and understand first the redemptive plan of God that really undergirds and underscores that enables us to worship a holy God. How do we become holy except by the work of God, the calling of God, the salvation of God, the sanctification of God? Because once the connection between worship and these themes of his calling, his salvation, his sanctification, are, are we, you can establish them and trace them throughout all the New Testament, the, the distinctives of this biblical and redemptive teaching blossom into this united testimony of corporate worship. Especially when you compare godly biblical perspectives to worldly thinking and in the practice we see around us, even, even back in the ancient world, but even today in the modern world. So first we're going to look at, just briefly, I can't go into this in great detail, but the Old Testament basis and typology, where we see that the corporate aspect is God calling a people, a nation, unto himself. That those people are called, that we see from the beginning in the fall, right after the fall in Genesis 3, God has been working, he's been seeking, he's been redeeming, even until now gathering his own people back to himself because of his love and mercy and because of, Lord willing, what we'll hear about in a few weeks, that seed of sin from Adam that is in each and every one of us. And so we see this this gospel promise from Genesis 3.15, this, this distinctive, central, thematic role and those who are to be called the children of God, who will be gathered together, who will be separate unto God apart from the other nations. And we know of, of Israel suffering under the oppression of Egypt, God then seeking them out and sending a, a typological prophet to them, a type of Christ through Moses, declaring God's call of these people to himself, and not just for freedom of the oppression they're under, 
not just to have better circumstances, but that, so that they would know him and that they would worship him. Yahweh, God, would be in his presence. And we see this very clearly in Exodus 3, 12 and following, where he's, he's speaking here of Moses. He said, certainly I will be with you, and this shall be a sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God at this mountain. So we see that God led his people. God brought them to his dwelling place. Continuing on in Exodus 15, he says, In your loving kindness, you have led the people whom you have redeemed. In your strength, you have guided them to your holy habitation. You will bring them and plant them in, your, in the mountain of your inheritance. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your dwelling the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. So we see him calling people to himself into a place where he will be worshipped, he will be known, where he will reveal himself to them. And God himself confirmed this, this new relationship with his people first through Abraham and his covenant. We went through covenantal theology, but with him and all his descendants, that God's, the promise to Abraham there was that God's people would be what? As many as the stars in heaven. And also where we have the, the first cutting of the covenant between God and Abraham as a sign of the righteousness granted to Abraham through faith in God and his promises. And then seeing this promise being fulfilled again in the next cutting of the covenant by God in the Mosaic covenant for the people. And that the key feature of the Mosaic Covenant is the promise of blessing through obedience as they, as his worshipers, will be treasured, his treasured possession. So in Exodus 19, 1-6, I'm just going to read the, the last part here. Verse 5, he says, Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among the peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. And then God, in, in further pursuing his people, confirmed this covenant with his people in Exodus 24. And there we see, we begin to see how he set forth the laws that required obedience, given in, in Exodus and Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomies. And note here that each of these laws specify how God's people are to live with God and with each other in this special covenantal bond. And it was in these laws of the covenant that we find the detailed sacrifices, the, the purification rituals, those found in Leviticus, that were the only God-given means of really repairing, repairing the breaches in the covenantal fellowship. And you can say, really, the cult here, that the God-ordained system of, of veneration and respect and obedience, what was required to maintain this covenantal bond through the shedding of blood. And in a sense, this is, for them, Israel, the Old Covenant, a, a regulative principle, as we see. It's, it's an ordained means of worship and redemption and, and pro prohibiting, for them, strange fire. However, in the Old Covenant for Israel, corporate worship was a special, a few times of the year occasion. 
or they would gather as the nation, as the people for particular festivals which were given to them through, again, Moses, the prophet for the people, where they were summoned together at the tabernacle later at, at, the, uh, at the temple and the place of the man, Lord's manifested presence for, for Passover, for a celebration of the first fruits and so on, what we see in Leviticus 23. But apart from these festivals, all the regular sacrifices, the regular offerings that were carried out by the priests is where we find the individual Israelites coming to the tabernacle and later in the temple when they needed to offer specific sacrifices for, for sin or impurity. And even though their, their corporate worship was a very special but non-frequent event, the Israelites were called to a full-time practice of exclusive devotion to the Lord. And we see that laid out very clearly, very detailed in Deuteronomy 6 for each of the families. You know, in everything you're doing, you're remembering and recognizing the law of the Lord and who he is. But to understand the sense of having intimate access to God's presence, worship was restricted to a specific people, a specific place, a specific time, and that of the tabernacle, which was guarded, protected by the priests. Any, any thoughts, any questions, any comments on that? That's, like I said, this is brief on the Old Testament basis and the typology we see there. It's bright up here, I can't really see. Nobody? Okay. Shout out, raise your hand. So then we see, of course, the fulfillment in Christ. And, and even with a very undeniable continuity between the Old Testament and New Testament, there's no, no denying that they are contiguous. The New Testament does stand, sometimes stand in, in a stark contrast to the perspectives of Old Testament worship, where we see the gospel, the good news of salvation through the new covenant blood of Christ, now demands a transformation of many of the traditional both categories and our patterns of worship where the old is completely done away with and the new has fully come, where it's been superseded, what we study in the book of Hebrews for three or three plus years. And this is where we must be careful not to attempt to go back to or attempt to apply many of the Old Testament terms and concepts in our new covenant worship. Because with the incarnation of Christ as the Son of God, we know from 2 Corinthians 1.20, all promises, everything has been fulfilled in Christ. He is now the prophet. He has the one that has brought the good news. He is the promised seed and, and savior and Messiah. He is the final prophet proclaiming salvation for his church. He is the priest. He is both high priest and the very suitable sacrifice to make atonement for the sins of his people in whom, to whom his gospel has now been preached and to whom those are called by him, the prophet. And as a king, for he reigns supremely as at the Father's right hand, having defeated now for us all of our enemies, Satan, sin, and death. And now he is preparing his queen. He is awaiting for his queen's arrival, his church, his bride's deliverance to his kingdom at the Father's command. So Christ is now the fulfillment for us of the earthly temple, completely replacing a single location, 
of a tabernacle or a temple where he becomes the true place of our worship. And for the believer, it is now the experience of being in Christ with God and through the Spirit, sealing us for that final redemption and dwelling in, in us as we see in Colossians 3.3. 3. An example of this, from, from a single tabernacle place of God's revealed presence to being the individual now temple of the Holy Spirit. It's what we see in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 to 20. And then now members together of Christ's body, members one of another in Ephesians 5. So we see that the new covenant has far superseded the old covenant in Christ's fulfillment of all the law's demands and all the ceremonial, all the sacrificial requirements and purposes. And now he alone is the singular access, the center through which we are enabled now to worship and what he said in John 4, in spirit and in truth. So now we come to worship. What does that mean? In the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, it has two meanings, really. It's to bow down, to prostrate yourself, to bend at the hip. But it also means to serve, to work, to be a bond slave. But in the New Testament, it takes on a meaning of to kiss, it, it's to adore, to revere. Proskuneo, it's pro tor, it's skuneo, to, to kiss. But what's found in each context in both the Old Testament and the New Testament is that worship requires key elements that make it so profound. Faith in God, his truth, a gratitude, a thanksgiving from the heart, and from this flows worship and obedience. Worship is now that of being what is done in spirit and in truth from a very localized, confined manner to, with outward forms to observe and follow through, now to a very personal, very inward and spiritual, really a pervasive experience in Christ himself at the center. So true worship that is now carried on in the person by the Holy Spirit is an inward spiritual supernatural event and in response to the truth of the gospel, the redemptive work of Christ, true doctrine, true promises, and all of which shape our worship according to his word. So our, our essential, indispensable, and defining heart of worship for us individually and when we gather together corporately is the experience of being satisfied in God is this what magnifies God in our hearts is he now the greatest joy and delight in our life because if you look at Paul's letter he doesn't distinguish between worship as a congregational service or as a pattern of our daily lives it's where our hearts desire to sing a hymn or song and the desire to visit a brother or sister in need is found to be really the same thirst and desire and delight in God. That's what motivates both things. But why, why is this? Why is this? How is this a reality now for the believer? It is because really our desire and passion for God is because of God's own really infinite exuberance for his own glory. God created for his glory. 
right? He elected Israel for his glory. He saved Israel for his glory. He restrained his anger even in the exile for his glory. He sends Christ to the earth for his glory. He sends the Son again a second time for his glory. And now our calling, our purpose, our worship is to manifest his worth, his glory to one another in the body as we gather and to the world as we live. So what does that imply for us? Well, to use very famous and familiar reason we get from John Piper, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. True? And this, this is why Christ and the apostles were so indifferent to the Old Testament, Old Covenant external forms, and so intent on the inward, what you can describe and experience as the spiritual authenticity of worship. You can think of it this way. What do you call praises to God if there is no heart satisfaction in God? There's one word term for it. Hypocrisy. Jesus talked about this in Matthew 15, 15, 8, talking about Israel, talking about the current day Jews. They honor me with their lips while their hearts are far away, far away from me, and in vain do they worship. So this applies for the child of God, the member of Christ's church, several things here. First, for those in Christ, we may now, and I would say we must now, find our delight and our joy in God. It's a good question to ask yourself. Does your soul pant after him? Can you cry and pray out like David that my soul pants for you as the deer longs and looks and searches for water? The the command to delight yourself in the Lord, what we just read in Psalm 37 and, and Philippians 4, 6, this is lacking, ask for it, pray about it. Another thing for those in Christ, worship must be radically God-centered, that nothing but God will satisfy your aching heart, that our intentional pursuit of God is to go hard after him personally, and especially when we gather each Lord's Day. In, In all areas, in our giving, in our singing of thanksgiving, in our praise and adoration and the reading and the preaching of the word, it's, it's away from ourselves and finding satisfaction in him alone. For those in Christ, our worship becomes an end in itself. What I mean is we don't, we should not, I pray we will not worship God so that we can have something else, that it's some type of a bartering tool. We worship him because we're satisfied in him alone. Not for the sake of we might have a better job, that we might have a a wife, but that we worship Christ and God alone because of him alone. And all we do, we strive to give him the glory. And for those in Christ, all of our life is worship. It's an ever-enlarging, ever-preserving sanctification and satisfaction in God himself. And this is why Jesus spoke about the kingdom being of such great value to us. Such a valuable treasure. He even says, sell all your possessions and give to charity. Make yourself money belts that you don't wear out. An unfailing treasure in heaven where no thief comes near or moth destroys. For where your treasure is, 
there will your heart be also. Finally, we should aim in all we do to grow in our satisfaction in God. Remember I said this, we, we aren't born again with a full capacity of satisfaction and joy and delight in God. We did Piper's book on when I don't desire God. We're going to face those times. But whether it's giving up our goods or even giving up our family or even our very lives, where we truly find and have a greater enjoyment of God no matter what happens in our lives, no matter what the circumstances are in this world. And this is what should motivate our behavior as well, both in individual living and especially as we gather as a congregation to learn to to know and experience a greater and greater satisfaction in God. This is why Hebrews 10, 24, and 25 become so precious to us, where we can stir one another on to good works, to, to pursue God, to know him, to delight in him. So what would we call, and this is not the normative principle, but anyway, this is what we would say, what's, what, what would normal corporate worship entail? What would it look like? Well, stated earlier from, from the Old Testament, the, the terms of worship are now the application and reality for the total life of the believer. This is what we see in Romans 12, really the whole chapter, but 12.1, where we offer ourselves, all of ourselves, mind, heart, soul, body, in the pursuit of God for his glory and our fullest enjoyment and satisfaction in him. But it's founded, all of it is founded on the word of God in our reading of the word of God, both personal, private, individual, family, but especially corporately in the teaching and preaching of God's word. This is our foundation. And not only because we as members of his church need to be exposed daily to the truth, but we need to be awakened to its supreme value, its powerful truth. And the gospel and all the other aspects of truth that God gives us for our daily lives. And especially the corporate proclamations. This is what will awaken worship in us. This is worship. It is the foundation for all proper worship and through our beings unto the Lord. And it's through this God-ordained act of preaching, and we even see this back in Nehemiah. Remember Ezra, where he brought forth the word of God, the impact it had on the people to heed and obey and cry out for God's mercy. Christ in Luke 4 The same thing there that has been passed now to the apostles established by Christ for his church and now given for the pastors, teachers, under shepherds to convey. And preaching of the word is also to convey a corporate demonstration of affection and honor for God. And through this, it awakens our affections of those in the church for God. This is, this is the means of awakening a, a true spiritual, biblical vision of God rather than seeing worship as some segregated or separate acts that we do even through the service or throughout the week. All of the avenues of worship that we see in Scripture, singing spiritual songs in Ephesians 5, baptism and the Lord's Supper, these are opportunities of worship for the body. Of course, prayer and thanksgiving. 
serving. If you want to see a good detailed synopsis of serving, Romans 12. And then fasting, too. Didn't think about that one, did you? (laughs) That's worship. Where our delight in God so far supersedes that water burger (laughs) or a steak. We'd rather delight in his word and feast on his manna. I'm not calling to a corporate fast just yet, but just consider that. Other examples we see are in Acts 13, Acts 15, Colossians 1, Romans 1, 2 Timothy 3, 16, of course. But what unites us in worship? Anybody want to venture some thoughts there? What would truly unite us in worship? Quiet group. Okay. How about a God-centered pursuit of him? Can't bring in the clowns. Can't bring in the stage props. It's all about the Father and the Son and the Spirit. It's where each of us have a vertical focus in the heart, looking unto the Lord vertically, and then looking out to one another in love, in service, in sacrifice to those around us. It must not, it cannot be a cult of personality. It cannot be a certain style of preaching. It is rightly handling the word of God that keeps our hearts focused and centered on him. It is also a plea for independence upon the Holy Spirit of God to work amongst us, to empower us, to illuminate us, to convict us, to teach us, to encourage us through the word of God. It is to intentionally set aside distractions and intrusions. When we gather together, whether it's technology, whether something horrible has happened at work, whether you just had a really bad, heated discussion with a friend or a spouse, We need to set those things aside to lay them at the foot of the cross when we come together to worship, to set our minds on him. And it's where we intentionally worship in song that makes much of God, which I know and am grateful, so grateful that we do here. Even our initial welcomes to strangers, to visitors, need to be Godward, to be welcoming into the family of God to see the difference that, that is here in his church, amongst his people in his church. It used to be Bible-saturated content, what we talked about earlier, preaching, singing, praying, welcoming, all of those saturated in the word of God. Come together to seek his face, to seek his glory. This is the motivation, <clears throat> teachers, future elders, future pastors, this is the motivation of the heart by the Spirit to express, preach, and convey the word of God with a sincere longing for God. It is not my intention or desire to stand here before you and try to impress you with my speech. It's contemptible. But to stir in you a longing for God, for Christ and his things, his glory, his word, his truth, his presence, his hope, his life. 
and from the pulpit to, to show the truth of the holy text and then what should transpire in our hearts and conversations and lives and service. That's the, the focus of our prayers. That's the intention of our preaching. But we're also to be intentional in prayer. Come boldly before the throne of grace, trusting that God hears the prayers of those who fear his name, that he will reveal the secret things of the Lord to those who fear his name, that we would have a, a Godward focus and longing in all aspects of worship. Expecting his presence and power. Do we all come together every Lord's Day expecting his presence and expecting his power to be at work among us? We don't know what the Spirit may do. We don't know where the wind blows, where it comes from, or where it goes. It could be a song that we sing and it ministers to a brother or sister or future brother or sister's hearts that brings about the convicting work of the Holy Spirit. It could be one simple scripture we read. That is the presence and the power of God. It is not man's doing. It, we need to intentionally involve our head and our heart. We're not just here to hang out. I know you guys know that. Just loving reminders. This, this is not the Sunday social club. This is not the come for great coffee and just have great fellowship. This is to involve, engage the mind and the heart as it's set upon God and guide our emotions by his truth. Not to be overrun with emotions or, or have any form of manipulation to excite us apart from the truth of God. That is the core of it. Humility and earnestness. As we are all in great need but we are given the promise, we are given really the command to come boldly before the throne of God, to approach Christ, God through Christ in worship, to receive and to serve. Heaven and hell are stupendous realities that deserve a certain demeanor in our minds and in our hearts. Yes, we can be serious, and we can be serious about being happy in God, right? about being joyful in him. It is a, a what, what Luther, or excuse me, Spurgeon calls a trembling joy to delight ourselves in a most holy God. Worship is building of the body in him. Keeping that vertical focus in worship has a great impact on the horizontal relationships and the building up of the body of Christ. A vertical focus will manifest itself greatly in horizontal demonstration of true love and service for one another. And being filled with the Spirit is to pray in this regard is what we see in Ephesians 5, 18 and 19. To be built up in him, to be matured in him. And we also need to be determined to welcome those different from ourselves for the sake and glory of Christ. There is a glory in the unity we have in Christ and the diversity we have. That is what's so glorious to God in this body is the diversity that we have. He has called people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. And to see the evidence of that in, in one church is worthy of his worship. It's his doing. Any questions so far? Any thoughts? How am I doing on time? Wow. Like I said, this is a sprint. Okay.
regulative principle, I know this is, I think this was brought up last week, touched on, but what is it? Is this for us? Question mark? Expecting a response? Pleading for a response? Anybody? Yes or no? Yeah? Good thing, bad thing, take it or leave it? It's great. Amen. All right. That's next slide. Hang on. <laughs> Got ahead of myself. Simply stated, the regular principle is that our corporate worship of God as the body of Christ is to be founded upon specific directions of Scripture. Or what I like to say is it must have a scriptural warrant. Okay? Which really makes sense as the whole of life itself is to be lived according to the truths of Scripture, right? All we do, eat or drink to the glory of God. But for the church, this means that this scriptural warrant can come in the form of, of explicit directives, implicit requirements, general principles of Scripture, positive commands, examples, and things derived from good and necessary consequence. And I didn't note where I got that definition from, but I'll look it up and give it to you if you're interested. But in summary, churches should not do it if the Bible doesn't say to do it. And, and hang on, I'm going to build on this. I'm not done yet. Some lean more toward what's called the normative principle, okay? Which also affirms that churches must do what Scripture enjoins, such as preaching in the Word, praying, singing, etc. But the normative principle allows for space and options in the service for things not specifically forbidden in Scripture. Like, should we illustrate a sermon with a skit? Should we pass out paper and fingerprint, finger paints for you to interpret the script, the message? for you in that particular way. Maybe even dancing in the aisles or floating an incense sensor. That's how, that's how you could take the normative principle to its extent. But the key for us should be what I said is, it was what is the warrant of scripture? Meaning that we should only heed what is found in scripture. We must, we, yeah, we must only do what we have been authorized to do from scripture and any and all corporate activity must have a warrant from Scripture. So the, the, the problem is the current generation of believers, today's believers, need to understand that the assembled church functions and operates under a different set of authorizations and warrants or licenses than the individual Christian does. For instance, we as a body, as a church, we are authorized by Christ in Matthew 16, 18, and 28 with his keys to the kingdom to make an international declaration about what the gospel is and who is a gospel citizen. Everybody agree with that? You're good with that? So this warrant for the church means that because I am a Christian does not mean that I alone have the authority to baptize my best friend in the river because he pronounced faith in Christ. Any problems with that? Or that I could administer the Lord's Supper at home for my family and not leave it to the church. 
It's the local assembled church that possesses this authority. It's under Christ's authority. It's under his scriptural warrant. And this means something really actually very good for us. The individual Christian, as we've been hearing for the last five weeks, we need the church. Church is not optional. But we need to be truly plugged in and committed to a local church in order that we may grow in the grace and knowledge and in our sanctification. Not just showing up on Sundays, but the church not only provides the formal accountability and structure to recognize a believer in baptism or to administer properly as a means of grace for the body of the Lord's Supper. It's a God-ordained structure to be built up for those who believe in the gospel, to live by the gospel, and so that the what and who of the gospel and a gospel life match in the believer in our lives. So if the believer needs a church to be formally recognized and accountable as a Christian, then the church must make sure it does not force anything onto a Christian that the Bible and the gospel do not require. Example, this isn't going to happen, but just for instance, an example. If I required every member of the body at Heritage Grace to start getting finger painting paints and paper and start interpreting messages that way, Would you go along with that? There'd be questions, right? I would, yes, okay, amen, good. Let's get more practical. It's the difference between choosing to abstain from alcohol yourself and requiring every member of the church to abstain from alcohol. Do you see the difference? Okay. We are bound to Christ first and then to his church, but the church must not bind up the believer or their conscience where the Bible and the gospel do not bind it. So our order of worship each Lord's Day effectively mandates how a Christian worships God in the assembly, and we find that the regulative principle to worship according to the guidelines of Scripture actually free us up to worship, as Jesus said, in spirit and in truth. So based on this and in the following and the regular principle, What can we assume if the Bible does not say anything about finger painting or incense? Well, the first assumption is the Holy Spirit had very good reasons to give us and authorize for us what he authorized and to stay silent where he stayed silent. He chose words rather than finger paintings, rather than skits, maybe because of the second commandment, I don't know nature of faith, but the Holy Spirit authorized speaking words, preaching the word, singing, prayer, thanksgiving, okay? Second assumption, we as humans, as creatures under the sovereignty of the creator, we're authorized to do only what God authorizes us to do. So it is the Lord alone who authorizes our activities when we're assembled as his body in corporate worship according to his word. This does apply for our personal lives as well, where God must rule and prayerfully does rule and guide our activities in both domains. But we cannot go beyond Scripture and warrant something, our preferences or bind one another, where Scripture does not speak to that. And the normative principle here lacks this institutional specificity. 
meaning it lacks the, the meaning about the existence, nature, and authority of the local church by virtue of those same keys of the kingdom that Christ has given us. Any thoughts on that? Did I completely take you off into left field? Everybody okay? Pardon? Yes. For the body. For the church, yeah. The Norman principles applying to the church as an assembled body. But go ahead, yeah. So, are we, are we inheriting grace regulative or normative? Regulative, yeah. when you go beyond scripture as far as it applies to what Christ has established for his church and how we are to remember my pyramid my Mount Zion chart those are the guidelines those are the aspects of the regular principle that the church is to obey heed and find worship in and when you start going beyond that to bring in my preference that I think is going to enhance somebody's worship where it's apart from the word of God, apart from teaching, then you can bring in that, that subjective area that can open a door to, okay, where do we stop from there? Do we start allowing, besides incense, do we want to bring in dancing? Because what are those things really going to do if they're, they're taking our centeredness off of God more, in, more so in just a, a, an application of something? I mean, an activity of sorts. Can we, can we dance and worship God? Yeah, I do, I do it at home. <laughs> but is it going to bring edification and instruction and equipping to the body to suddenly start having dancing here? Because then where does that carry over into entertainment and performance and get our minds and our thoughts and you know all the distractions off of God and onto that? The help? I we were a regulative church. I guess because when I was first uh, introduced to the regulative principle, I, I was introduced to the, the really strict side of the, the That's spectrum. That's the other side you can go to, yeah, where you can so get become legalistic. Yeah, regulative in the sense that we're going to heed the instructions of the wor- Word of God first and foremost. What He's given us as a body, that's what we're going to follow. Should somebody come with a a request, an idea of something, how we could change up, we are certainly going to pray and seek the Lord and look at scripture about that. But to, to go to the far side of the legalistic scope, no, we're not that. For, for me to stand up here and say, if you want to be a member of this church, you cannot drink any alcohol whatsoever. That would be to the extreme. Otherwise, we've got to rip out what Paul told Timothy. You know, granted, wine was different back then. The alcohol levels were content. But what else does Scripture say about that? Don't be drunk. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. 
and that falls under the work of the Spirit providing that fruit of self-control. Do I know if I have two glasses of wine at dinner, I'm going to lose some control? There's where you're accountable to the Lord individually. And when that, that focus, that discussion becomes a priority in the body more so than, you know, what am I seeing in Scripture? What did I study? How can I pray for you? How can I worship and sing together? Then we're in trouble, and I'm way over time, but good questions. Yeah. Brother, did you have one? Thanks, brother. All right. If you're interested, I can send this to you, but I have considerations there. <laughs> how, how do you prepare for worship? I mean, seriously, brothers and sisters, am I, am I perfect in completing every one of these during the week and Saturday night for here? No. But just some things. I, I borrowed this from our brother Piper and uh, changed a few things, but these, these are a reality of our life. This is how we both daily, individually, and corporately worship the Lord as we come together. From prayer to sleep, our heart attitude, are we coming desiring and willing to seek, to, to receive, to be taught? And we desire God and his truth above all. So if you want a copy of this, I'll be glad to send it to you. But we need to break. I've gone way over. Thank you for your questions, for your attention. Let's uh, continue our worship. Amen.